This episode of Taking Care contains content that may be triggering, including references to mental health illness and self-harm. If you or someone you know is in need of support, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224636. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of opera and the national boards. I'm Susan Bigger, and my guest here today with me is Kate Richards. Welcome, Kate. Thank you, Susan. It's lovely to be here. Can you just tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. So um, I was born in the country outside of Melbourne um, and went to school in Melbourne, studied medicine at Monash University. I graduated in 1998 and then my medical career stopped um, and that's partly what we're here to talk about today. Um, I developed in year 12 severe depression and had several severe episodes throughout uni and actually became very sick in my final year. Uh, Somehow I managed to pass but I did not go on to practice after that. Instead I had some time off travelling, came back, enrolled in the RMIT Diploma of Professional Writing and Editing, which is a wonderful course. Uh, Loved it. And since then, I've been working both in medical research at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, also in genetics at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, and spending the rest of my career time writing both uh, fiction and non-fiction So the first book I wrote was in 2013, Uh, it's called Madness, a Memoir, and it's the story of, I suppose, my first 10 years of living with a serious mental illness. Uh, Some of those years were quite tumultuous and it took me a very long time to learn to accept the illness. Uh, The second book is called Is There No Place For Me? Making Sense Of Madness, which is, uh, I suppose, a long-form essay. And really that was written, or I wrote that, in conjunction with my publishers at Penguin Random House to, um, I guess, give patients or people who are living with a mental illness, their families, friends and other loved ones, a place to start with, uh, in, in terms of navigating the, um, the very complex and sometimes very stressful mental health system. And then just this year, uh, my first novel was published, also with Penguin Random House. It's called Fusion, and it's a story of conjoined, adult conjoined twins who live in the wilderness around Mount Kosciuszko in New South Wales. Your first two books were both uh, award-winning books, um, correct? Uh, yes, in, in, in Australia, yes. Um, actually, funnily enough, the, the, the award I'm kind of most proud of, actually, I didn't win. I was shortlisted for the Australian Human Rights Award for Literature for the, uh, for the essay. And in many ways, um, although there was another very deserving winner of that award, just to be shortlisted was incredibly... Um, humbling for me and really special and it's the uh it's the the only actually award sort of certificate thing that I've ever had framed but um it actually meant meant a great deal yeah and do you think that's because um that award was acknowledging the um potential impact of your book on um helping people who live with serious mental illness 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the other awards which Madness won, uh, which is wonderful and I'm deeply appreciative, they were really looking more at the way the book's written, the technique uh, of writing within within the book, how the story comes to life, all of those things um, that literature awards are about, and I suppose a little less about the actual subject matter itself. Yeah, I'd be really interested to hear, Kate. What um, for you, looking back? What's your overall experience, uh, or your overall your overall feeling? I suppose about your experience of healthcare when you were going through your most acute periods of being unwell. The first thing I would say is that um, being very unwell, and I would suppose this this is the same for people with a physical illness. I, I, I'm lucky enough not to have a serious physical illness, but the overriding feelings that, that one has with um, a serious mental illness, especially around the time of diagnosis, fear... I mean, I was so scared. I was just so scared. I was confused. I was terribly confused. I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know why it was happening to me. I didn't know if I'd done something terribly wrong that had somehow caused the illness. Mm. Um, I had no idea how to navigate the mental health system, even though I, um, at the time, was training to be a doctor. Um, my family were terribly confused and um, anxious. And so I think the first thing that made a difference to me as a patient was having someone listen, <laughs> I think. Um, and probably the other thing would be feeling that I was somewhere safe. Mm. So, you know, did... I had some absolutely amazingly positive experiences in hospital and I had some deeply traumatic experiences in hospital. Um, and one of the key things for me when I was experiencing severe depression and psychosis was that even just the room that I might be in and the people within it, that I felt there was a sense of safety um, amid all of the confusion. That was massively important and it wasn't always... Uh, there. Um, so that was probably the number one thing. Um, and then the other thing that I remember that's always stuck with me um, as an outpatient and as an inpatient was whether I felt someone was actively listening to my story. Mm. So were they listening to just come in with the next question as quickly as possible, to move the interview along as quickly as possible. They, you know, that there was clearly an agenda here and we had to get through everything as fast as possible. Or was the person sitting and being present with me, no matter what I was saying or not saying, um, and allowing there to be space for me to at least to the best of my ability, explain what was happening for me inside my mind. And I think even at my sickest, I could tell which sort of interview we were having. Mm. Um, and that simple stillness or that simple clarity around me feeling, actually, this is someone who's taking the time to really 
listen to me, to really be present with me in this space, it didn't matter really what they said. Um, that was profound um, and I think it's an extraordinary part of the healing process that's often um, not given the attention it deserves. Um, and I think the other thing I'd like to say around that is that having chatted to a lot of folks who have been, you know, acutely unwell, um, other patients in mental health wards, including public mental health wards and including the intensive care area of public mental health wards that are locked, um, we still do have an awareness of how people are treating us, what their underlying intention is when you're very unwell yeah absolutely you do even if you're the way you're articulating things doesn't make a great deal of rational sense I think you still retain the ability to sense a human to human connection or lack thereof and I wonder Kate for you because one of the things that you bring to this discussion which is obviously um somewhat unique is that you um were uh had just spent, you know, the the last four or five years thinking every day about what it meant to provide, potentially to provide mm-hmm. good medical care. Mm-hmm. And um, and so presumably you were still, I mean, were you still seeing yourself as a doctor? Were you still conscious of these two things going on while you were in that patient care? And did you do you think that changed your experience or your interpretation of that experience? I think when I was very unwell, I was 100% a patient because the part of my brain that would normally be acting in a logical, rational, intelligent kind of way had gone. It it had sort of sunk and the illness had really taken over and was absolutely front and centre. So the, the delusional thoughts I had were absolutely consuming all of my consciousness and all of my cognitive ability. Um... So it was interesting that as I slowly got better, I kind of started to see things more clearly and to recognise how care was happening around me, not to myself necessarily, but certainly with um, with, with other patients as well. Uh, so it, it kind of probably depended on how unwell I was. Yeah. Um, it certainly took a long time from the from the point of say being in hospital to being back home well and ready to sort of say, okay, I I trust my mind enough to to go back into the world as a medical student mm-hmm. and to resume my my studies and to think of myself more as a as a training professional than as a patient. Yep. Yeah. How did your colleagues, your fellow students respond? I think like many people say with a diagnosis of um serious illness, I think it can also happen with the death of a loved one that uh some people some fellow colleagues are able to, for whatever reason, become even closer um, in in ways that are that are small and yet profound, and other people perhaps find the 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 thought of what was happening for me too challenging, too frightening. Uh, I think for some it was that idea of seeing me and then thinking about their own health 
and wellness, their own perhaps vulnerability, um, the fact that this kind of serious mental illness can happen to even people who are studying medicine um, and that in itself can be very confronting. And so for those those colleagues and friends, uh, they drifted away um, very quickly. And although at the time that was devastating for me, I, I could also in a way understand why they might be feeling that it was too confronting. Um, I think one of the things we learned very quickly in medical school, particularly in clinic, the clinical side of it, was um, someone's, someone else has called it a systematic desensitisation where you um, – there's so much to learn, there's so much pressure um, that, the, that you – the only way to survive is to, is to really develop a gulf between – your own vulnerability and things about yourself that aren't quite right yet or that you haven't, that you do feel some sense of shame or um, some sense of, okay, this is an area of my life, I know I haven't got it together yet. Mm. Um, you tend to develop a, a, quite a gulf between that and your professional self and your professional self is is quite an independent being from that vulnerable, scared, tired self um, and perhaps my illness was something that um, brought the two together for some people. Um, um, a stigma, there still Absolutely. exists a stigma about mental mental health. Absolutely, yes, without question and it affected, certainly deeply affected my ability to explain what was happening to me Um Especially, I mean, I my friends, I abs- was absolutely honest with my friends and family, um, and I had many friends who I really loved in the in the medical school, um, but I co- could not work out how to tell my supervisor or you know the people sort of the, at the um, the management level of my medical year, the dean or the the coordinator of the year. What was ha- I could not work out how to go about doing that because I I hadn't seen we we didn't have any training in the fact that doctors can actually become mentally unwell too and medical students and uh, I, the words just I, I I couldn't work out which words to use even or how to go about sitting down with someone and saying this is actually what's happening for me and I need some yeah help or assistance or support. When you were um, well, much healthier, then you made a decision um, ultimately not to continue to practice medicine. I, I, I think we'd be um, interested to know what that what that decision has meant for you. It's a really complex thing, and I still have um, quite a lot of grief a- a- around that decision. And I I still have sometimes because I work. In hospitals, um, I see not just my my colleagues as they were then, uh, but other medical practitioners around. And I just sometimes I think, gosh, I think I could actually do that. I think I'd be okay at it, and I think I'd quite love it. Um, I'd never heard of any other young doctors who were managing well with a mental illness and managing internship and residency and so on. Um, I didn't even know if any existed, and of course they did and do, uh, but... Um, they were under the radar. 
Absolutely. At the time, because it wasn't spoken about at all, um, I felt like I was the only one. Mm. Um, and so I do have quite a profound sense of grief around not being able to continue. But the trouble with my illness is that it's unpredictable. So I can have two years of complete illness, illness free, and I think, brilliant, you know, this is, this is never going to come back. I'm fine now. I can continue with my adult life. And then, you know, I, I'm taking the medication properly. I'm trying to follow a reasonably um, healthy lifestyle um, you know, things are going well in my personal world and my working world and bang, I'm unwell again. And the difficulty with mental illness is that you can't predict how long episodes will last and you can't predict how severe they can become. So um, it can take me six months to get better. And I realised fairly early on that the stress of worrying about whether that would happen to me on top of potentially missing great chunks of work, it's just untenable with, with medicine because it would mean that my colleagues would have to step in and take over my caseload. And I think different people would manage that situation in different ways. I think for me the worry around that and how I would feel terribly guilty about that would be worse for my mental health mm. than not stepping away um, and finding a job that, yeah, I don't love it anywhere near as much as perhaps I would have loved medicine, but um, it's stable and it's relatively stress-free and the hours are very stable. You're talking about medical research, but you yeah. have um, also found um, another calling. Absolutely. Um, which you do love. I, think. I do love. <laughs> right. absolutely love. And yeah. it's interesting that the first book, the first major piece of work you chose to write about um, or topic was about your experience of living with mental mm -hmm. illness. It was terrifying in many ways. Uh it was, I, I think that the, the overriding, so before or just as I was starting, I sort of had a, good, had a good talk to myself, I guess. And what I decided was I either write it full-heartedly and honestly and I do my best to give an absolutely accurate picture of what things were like for me when I was very unwell or I don't do it at all. And so I ummed and ahed about that for weeks really uh, because at the time there were books about people with serious mental illness written by clinicians, written by family and friends, written by therapists. There were books written by people themselves with a ghostwriter and there were some books written by people themselves that were were what I call sanitised, which is completely understandable. But they, I think they were um, they were almost looking back. So it was very much I'm now in a great place, and I'm going to tell you what it was like for me thirty years ago. Um, but I'm not that person anymore. And I thought what I needed when I was really unwell, what would have made a difference to the loneliness and the worry about not knowing anyone else going through a similar kinds of things was could I write it 
in the present tense and the first person um, so that reading it gives people almost – it's almost like you're walking the journey with me. So that, I think, felt really vital and I felt if I could do that, then that was what I wanted to do and if I couldn't, then that would be that I wouldn't go ahead with the project. It really was um, – could could my experience um, in some way be that connection with other people who might be feeling as lost and lonely and confused as I was, particularly in the beginning, in the first couple of years um, of the, of the illness? And uh, and really, I I was speaking at the library just last week, and a young man stood up and said, um, "Your book saved my life." And he has bipolar. He said, you just get it. And I didn't feel like I was the only one who was crazy like this. And I just thought, right, that's it. My entire reason for all of this is is summed up in in that one sentence from him. And that's that's the most profound thing. As as a writer, there's nothing nothing more important, I think, than that. Those who are living in um, in that world themselves, but also maybe those who are caring for people oh, who absolutely. are living in that world. So both uh, families and cares, caregivers, but also um, also the medical community and the nursing yeah, community and those yeah. who who um, reach out to and sort of and support people in those circumstances. Absolutely. Um, and I, I recognise that my little book is is just one small piece in that brought in you know in that enormous puzzle of the human condition and and our kind of um, drive to understand it better. I don't, I don't mean it's the only book one should read about about mental illness at all, but it could be one of one of a one small part of of a family coming to terms with what's happening for them. Um, a partner, um, a parent, a child, um, as well as someone who's suffering themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and what about in thinking in retrospect? I wonder, have you thought much about y- your two careers? About what um, what makes a good writer and what might make a good doctor, and whether there's much overlap in those? I think there's quite a lot of overlap, actually, and. It's not only that that medicine is in many ways an art as well as a science, um, and writing in many ways can be a science as well as an art. I think both both professions are deeply interested in what it is to be human, fundamentally, um, and deeply curious about human nature and who we are and how we come to be who we are and how we learn and grow and develop and and I guess all of the the individualities that come within that and the idiosyncrasies of of um, cognition and 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 bodily function and all of that are just as interesting to writers as they are to clinicians. Um, so in, in in a way, there's there's a great deal of overlap. The idea of human connection of creativity can also be really really important. And especially around developing a therapeutic relationship with patients, um, yeah, there's no question. So, yeah, it's it, it's interesting because on the surface they might seem 
very different but actually I think there's a lot about them that's similar and I think the impetus to to go into one or the other or or both um and you know there are many doctors who are writers or writers who are doctors I'm not sure which way around you mm-hmm. want to put it but uh but I think that that does and, and and have been throughout history and I think and I think that is because underlying both professions is this great curiosity and interest in in who we are as people I love that concept about this sort of shared humanity. I presume from what you've said that that there were some really um, that you had some very positive experiences um, with health professionals. Mm. I wonder if you can tell us if you have a, a story or an example you could give us. Mm. One of the things that made a great difference was when the the divide between us as patients on the on the mental health ward and clinicians when that divide was um, minimised, if you like. So if someone just came out and sat with us, we remembered that and, and it made a difference. And uh, I th- so I think in, in many ways it was those small things that I still remember even 15 years later. Um, the other thing that made a profound difference for me was someone expressing just a simple sentence of empathy that seemed heartfelt. So not a kind of glib um, response, but uh, even if what I was saying wasn't particularly rational, but to have someone say something like, um, that sounds really scary or... um, there's one example that I use that I still remember, and it would be about 20 years ago now. I was in um, a surgical ward um, after I had tried, thankfully unsuccessfully, to, to cut off my arm. One of the plastic surgery registrars came in one day after I'd been there for quite a while, probably a couple of weeks, and she just sat down. It would have been the end of her shift, I think. It would have been about 7 o'clock at night. And she just looked at me for a minute and then she said, I can't imagine the amount of pain you must be in to do what you did. Mm. And that's all she said. Mm. And she she just sat with me for a, another couple of minutes and then said, I'll see you tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I have never forgotten that. And I burst into tears after she left the room and I really, I felt, oh, thank God, someone has seen me and heard me and didn't try and make it all go away or come up with a, with a snappy um, rejoiner of any kind. And uh, they just connected with they, you. It was just that simple and connection. Yeah, the fact that she was saying, I don't understand but I'm really I'm just going to sit here and be with you in this moment and acknowledge your pain um you know and and in terms of I think that really kick-started the healing from that episode was just that one sentence 
and I can still vividly remember sitting in the bed, I can remember the, the room, I can remember the ward, and it's all because of that one sentence. So um, I think those little things that perhaps people aren't sure whether they make much of a difference or not, if I could just say that, yes, they do, they really do, an acknowledgement of pain or fear or confusion is enough, um, and a dismissal is is heartbreaking. It does sound like you had some experiences which um, were not life-giving. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, I suppose, at the risk of taking you back to a difficult place. Um, are, are there any of, the, any of those things that you learned from that that would be useful? Um, you know, yeah. that you think if you had a moment to, yeah. um, to sit down and tell a health professional what yeah, you yeah, wish might have been yeah. different. The number one thing would be please don't try and fix it straight away. Um, I don't think, I really don't think patients or many patients have an expectation that their clinician will wave a magic wand and fix the situation. And sometimes um, trying to do that as a clinician actually can um, brush away the complexity of the problem for a patient so that they might not go on to talk about what's really bothering them. Having someone along that you feel is walking the path with you for that period of time, it, it, it's, it's enormously healing. And, and I think the other thing that, um, that make, can make a wonderful difference or the opposite is is around the idea of hope. So when I was first admitted to a public um, mental health ward, the consultant had a meeting with my parents and said to them that um, I had this serious illness, I was never going to get better, I was going to be on medication for life, they should arrange for me to start on the disability support pension, um, I would never work, um, and their expectations of me as an individual needed to change rapidly. Um, and they've never forgotten that um, because it was, you know, it was so demoralising for them. It was also wrong, apart from anything else. I mean, there was no way that particular consultant psychiatrist could make that prediction because we're all individual and we all, we all manage our illness differently and our illness affects our lives differently. So... Apart from the fact that he was wrong, Thankfully. that complete absence of any hope in my future, um, it was devastating. The opposite of that um, can make a real difference. Someone expressing a gentle sense of hope that someone can get better or at least get to a point where they're the best they can be with a particular illness we often hear a discussion about bringing humanity back into medicine yeah. and much of what you describe, Kate, mm. is about bringing humanity mm. back into medicine. But interestingly, um, both for, we need to bring it back, both for patients and their families and that sense of connection as you've described, mm. and also for caring oh, for absolutely. medical professionals yes. themselves yes. And, um, and their um taking good care of them and teaching them to take good care of themselves and valuing that. It sounds like you're sort of so bringing true. those. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right, and I really think you know it, any anything in. I mean, I the thing about we you know we talk about one in four people um, may experience an episode of mental illness in their lifetime. That's true, but four in four um, need to take care of their own mental well being. All of us, every single human being on earth, um, well, for every single human being on earth, mental well being is is part of living a good life. Uh, and so I think that absolutely is true for medical practitioners as it is for absolutely anyone else, no matter what you're doing. Thank you so much for being with us today, for thinking about um, what makes really interesting questions like what makes a good doctor, what makes a good writer, and what good healthcare looks like um, for people who live with um, serious mental illness. Thank you so much, Susan. It's been an absolute pleasure and I really welcome the opportunity to come and have a chat with you today. And thank you everybody for joining us on Taking Care. My, uh, my guest today has been Kate Richards. If you have any feedback or comments, um, please contact us at communications at opera.gov.au and we'll see you next time.